When someone lost hope, they're almost always the next to die. When you read Viktor Frankl or Elie Wiesel, Auschwitz survivors, that's what you hear in their writings. None of us here this morning have experienced anything like Auschwitz. But some of us have gone through really horrible things. And the principle that those survivors of the Holocaust share with us is that the loss of hope would so often precede even death because hope is one of the things that we need to survive here on this earth. Some of you are at the very end of losing hope, even here this morning. He told you he was going to change, and so you gave him another chance. But then he went back to his old ways again. Or the doctor told you, if this treatment doesn't work, we don't know what else to do. And now you're facing the reality that this last hope is not working. How do we not lose hope on this earth? It's a question for all of us because we all are prone to despair as we walk through this life here on this earth in a broken world. We're groaning here on this earth, because we're waiting. We're waiting for things to be made right again. We're starting an Advent series today entitled Waiting, and it's going to be different from maybe some other Advent experiences you've had over the years. Maybe you've been part of an Advent celebration that was very bright and cheerful. Um, This year's Advent series here at North Sub uh, is going to be a little bit more sober, and that's because we are thinking about how the church throughout the ages has used Advent as a time of waiting. And really, there's two parts to that waiting. There's a backward-looking part of the waiting where we think back to when God's people were waiting for the Savior to come and redeem humanity. But then we also think about our present experience and how we presently are waiting for that same Savior to return And finish what he started and make all things right once and for all. For those of you who came here this morning in the depths of despair, we're going to look at a passage briefly in Romans 8. It was just so beautifully read that speaks to the despair that we're all prone to experience during times of suffering, times of hopelessness as we wait and groan here on this earth. Would you turn there with me to Romans 8 verses 18 through 25? As you're turning there, I'll just provide us with a little bit of background. In this chapter, Romans 8, Paul so far has talked about this life and this glory and this freedom that we have in Christ. But in the very same chapter, he's talked about how God's people are going to experience suffering and even death. And so it raises the question as these two Things are held together, even in the same chapter, raises the question that probably many of us have asked at some point. How can I put my hope in a God who allows his children to suffer and even die? That's the question that we'll be thinking about as we look at Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Would you scan that passage just at the 30,000 foot level briefly with me? And look for a three-letter word that gets repeated throughout the passage. What's a three-letter word that gets repeated throughout Romans 8, 18 through 25? Anybody see it? 
It's four, yes. Four, F-O-R. It's verse 18, 19, 20, 22, 24. The word four keeps coming up. And that, that signals us that this is one of those passages in which Paul is making this logic-driven argument. He's reasoning it out. And so our task this morning in our brief moments together is just to follow the train of the argument as Paul talks to us about hope during a time of groaning and waiting. So let's jump right in with verse 18. Verse 18 is something of a thesis statement for the passage, and it's telling us that our suffering is worth it because of future glory. Listen as I reread verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These sufferings that Paul's talking about, what kind of sufferings does he have in mind? We see in the rest of the passage that it's not just limited to the sort of sufferings that come from being persecuted for our faith. That's included, but in the rest of the passage we see futility, we see groaning, we see desire for new bodies, all of which indicate that there's more here in the sufferings. This is all of the sufferings that we experience on this earth that we go through by putting our trust in Jesus. In other words, friends, the Holy Spirit this morning wants to use the words of the Apostle Paul here in Romans 8 to speak to you with regards to your failing health. He wants to speak to you with regards to your dicey financial situation right now. He wants to speak to you with regards to your aging parents or the breakup that you just went through. It's all of the suffering that we experience here on this earth and go through by trusting Christ. And that's because the danger in all of those types of suffering... It's really the same at the bottom of it. Here's what I mean. When someone ridicules us for our faith, when someone, uh, when the doctor tells us that we have cancer, when the hurricane hits, all those different forms of suffering, the real danger in them is not primarily that we would experience some discomfort. The danger in them isn't really even that we would die. The danger when we go through that suffering is that we lose our faith in God. And so, the big question when we go through that suffering is, in the midst of this suffering, will I continue to trust in God that he will bring me through this suffering to glory? Or, will this suffering cause me to lose the trust that I had in God? We're only going to be able to trust in him to the extent that we can envision to the future glory that's coming, according to verse 18 here. But what's, what's Paul talking about in verse 18 when he talks about this glory? That's not a word that we use very often. But glory in Scripture is something that God hardwired in each of us a desire for. In other words, it's when you go to the Grand Canyon and you look out over it and literally you can't breathe for a second because the breath just goes out of your lungs. You're so amazed at what you're seeing. It's when you stand at the altar and the reverend pronounces you man and wife and your heart is beating so fast you feel like it's going to come right out of your chest. It's when you go to that concert and the concert ends up being everything that you thought it would be and you're just weeping in the middle of this crowded group of people and your friends are all making fun of you but you don't even care because it's so glorious. Those instances, those moments that we get here on this earth are just foretastes, little, little tastes of this glory that is to come. And God gives us a few of those along the way here on the earth 
to stir up our desire for that day when that desire for glory will achieve its ultimate fulfillment in the age to come. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I was thinking about it this week, and I think I could tell the whole story of my life as a quest for that glory. I have journals from when I was a teenager writing about how I want to live the kind of life that people want to write books about. And I think about big decisions I've made along the way, where to go to college, what career to choose, what second career to choose, marriage. And I can see in hindsight that a lot of those decisions, a major factor in them was what decision I could make here has the potential to be the most epic, right? And I know that a part of that is nothing more than selfish ambition, and it's sinful. But I was struck this week reading this passage and thinking about this desire for glory that God hardwired into us, that even the sinful, selfish ambition that drives my desire for the epic is just a twisting of a good desire that God has placed in me and in each of us, this desire for glory, for this ultimate experience. For those of you who are definition people, here's a good definition of it that one pastor used that I really think fits well with the biblical data. Glory is overwhelming, all-satisfying beauty and greatness. Overwhelming, all-satisfying beauty and greatness. That's what Paul wants us to put on the scale opposite the suffering that we are experiencing here on this earth. On one side of the scale is the suffering we're experiencing here on the earth, whatever you were thinking about at the beginning of this sermon, we were talking about that groaning that we all face. On the other side of the scale is this future glory that we can envision. And what Paul's saying in verse 18 is that the difference in weight between the two is so great that it's really not even worth comparing. It's like when you were a little kid in the neighborhood and you sat on the seesaw and then the biggest kid in the neighborhood thought it would be funny to come run along and just jump really hard on the other side and you went flying up in the air. That's what Paul's saying here. That weightlessness in comparison is the weightlessness of the suffering that you and I go through here on this earth. It's nothing in weight compared to the heavy, heavy weight of the future glory that is to come in Christ. So when Paul's hurting, he fixes his eyes not on the heaviness of the hurt, but on the comparatively much greater heaviness of the glory that is to come. And that's his thesis in verse 18. There's more to be said here in the coming verses, so let's move on to verse 19. Verse 19 expands it to the rest of creation and tells us that the rest of creation is yearning for us human beings to be seen in our future glory. Let me reread verse 19 as you look for that. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So maybe you noticed back in verse 18, something was being revealed to us so that we could see it in its glory. But look in verse 19, what's being revealed? Now it's us that are being revealed so that creation can see us in our glory. You might say, well, our glory, creation see us in our glory. I don't feel very glorious right now. Things are aching that aren't supposed to ache. Things are sagging that aren't supposed to sag. I'm working this nine-to-five job that is very ordinary. I'm suffering just like most people. When I look in the mirror, I don't see glory. I think that's just the point, right? That right now, when the world looks at a Christian, it's pretty unremarkable. But according to Scripture, there's a time coming in which 
God's people will be seen to be something so incredibly glorious that if you could see, if we could see each other right now in our future state of glory, it would take our breath away. We would be tempted to fall down and worship. As a matter of fact, according to Scripture, we are going to need glorified bodies, if this makes sense. We're going to need glorified bodies in order to be able to see and appreciate each other in their glorified bodies because our present sinful condition can't even handle it. And according to verse 19, all of creation right now, as we speak, is craning its neck, looking for that day to come, looking for the day when they get to see us in our glory. But why is that? How crazy is that? How crazy is that that the rocks and trees and birds that you passed on the way in here this morning are waiting with eager longing to see you in your glory? How could that be? Well, the answer is going to be in verse 21. But I really don't want to skip over verse 20 because verse 20 gives us the condition that creation presently finds itself in. In verse 20, we see that creation presently is in this condition. God subjected all of creation to futility as a result of human sin. Let me reread verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is this futility that creation is experiencing? It's, it's that feeling that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Things aren't working the way they were meant to work. Right? Uh, a few examples. Work here on earth. It's a lot harder than it was originally supposed to be. There are now thorns and thistles that work against us as we try to grind and scrape out a living for our families. Childbirth is another one. Childbirth is much more painful than it was meant to be. We're in a condition here on earth in futility that if we can even get pregnant, the childbirth experience is excruciatingly painful as we bring another human into the world. So the writer of Ecclesiastes looks at the whole condition of futility on earth right now and how basically all we're doing is seems like every day running the hamster wheel and just trying to grasp one handful of wind. And he says, all is vanity. All is futility, in another translation. But who did this? Who put creation through this? Did you see that in verse 20? There's a him. Him who subjected it. Who is that? I think the clue is in the last two verses of, two words of verse 20. Him who subjected it in hope. So it can't be Adam who subjected creation to the futility that it's in right now because when Adam sinned, creation did fall into futility, but he didn't do that in hope. It can't be Satan either that subjected creation to futility because Satan certainly didn't do it in hope. It must be God. The hard thing we read here is that God is the one in verse 20 who subjected creation to the futility that it's in right now, that things don't work the way that they were meant to work. In verse 21, we're going to see the content of the hope with which he subjected it, but I don't want to move past right now the acknowledgement of the fact that this is a scandal, that God subjected creation to what it's experiencing. We don't have to think far beyond 2017 to be offended by the idea that the hurricanes and earthquakes and wars and division that we're experiencing now, that we were subjected to that as a creation by God?
How could that be? We understand it better when we remember that Romans 8.20 is really nothing more than an elaboration on what we saw back in the third chapter of the Bible in Genesis 3, when God, in response to human sin, did more than just abandoning the world to natural law. He actually passed an active judicial sentence on creation as a result of human sin, in response to that sin. He put a curse on the world and subjected it to futility. And that should make us tremble to realize that we have such a holy God who hates sin so much that every bit of futility we see in the world around us that we read on the news every morning is ultimately God's judgment against human sin. That's how seriously he takes it. And it's meant to be a reminder of us, reminder to us of how serious that sin is. But maybe now that we've seen verse 20, we can understand verse 21 better. Now that we've seen the situation of futility that creation is in, we can understand why in verse 21, creation is longing and what they're longing for. The content is there in verse 21. The content is that creation's yearning for the day when they'll share in our future glory. That day is coming. Let me reread verse 21. The hope is that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the content of the hope back in verse 20. God has so tied the destiny of all creation to our destiny that the freedom we will one day experience will result in the freedom all of all the rest of creation. It's like Beauty and the Beast. The remake came out last year, right? Some of you saw it. All of the items in the castle, right? The clock, the candlestick, the teacups. They're all waiting for the beast to be turned back into a prince, right? Because when the beast gets turned back into a prince, it will mean that they get transformed back into their glory as well. That's a picture of how God has hardwired our relationship with creation to work. Creation is yearning for the day when we are restored to glory because in that day, creation itself will also be restored to glory. And that's why in verse 20, it can say that God subjected creation to this futility in hope. It's in hope because from the beginning, God always intended it to be temporary. He always intended to turn the beast back into a prince and to make everything right in the castle once again. But in the meantime, of course, it's hard. And we're going to try to acknowledge that over the course of this Advent series. We are groaning. And as the passage concludes in verses 22 to 25, we see that our groans are particular sort of groans. They are the groans of the maternity ward and the groans of the orphanage. Let me reread verses 22 through 25 again as you look for that. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in verse 22, it's creation that's groaning. And as one pastor pointed out, as you're walking through a hospital, 
and you hear someone cry out in pain, groan in pain, it makes all the difference in the world whether you're in the maternity ward or the cancer ward, right? Because there's different kinds of pain. There is pain that results in death, and there's pain that results in life. And what verse 22 is telling us is that the pain that creation is experiencing right now is it's the groans of childbirth. It's the sort of pain that leads to life. In other words, when a volcano erupts or when a hurricane hits or when an epidemic breaks out, those are the pains of a mother in labor. They are uh, contractions that the earth is experiencing as the earth gets ready to give birth to a new earth, as the Bible teaches. Hear the words of Jesus along these lines and take comfort from them. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Some of us husbands were amazed by that, how quickly our wives forgot how horrible that experience was. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Our pain, the pain of creation, while we're here, it will be intense pain, but it's productive pain. It's the sort of pain that leads to new life. In verse 23, Paul switches the metaphor. Now he's focusing in, zeroing in specifically on humans and our pain, exclusive of creation. And he says our pain right now is like, our groaning is like the groaning of a child who's waiting to be adopted. Now you might think, well, elsewhere, Paul says that we already have been adopted into God's family. Elsewhere, Paul says that we already have been redeemed. What's this here about waiting for our adoption, waiting for our redemption? And this is just one instance of the already and not yet that we see constantly throughout Scripture, right? There's an already aspect of what we're waiting for, and there's a not yet aspect. In other words, there's a sense in which we already have been redeemed. We already have been adopted into God's family. But there's another sense in which that's not yet complete. We haven't yet tasted it in its fullness. We're still waiting for that. And here in this particular passage, what's incomplete about it is that we haven't received our new bodies. That's when our redemption will really be complete, when we receive our new bodies. Those of you who are in high school and college can't really appreciate that promise as much yet, the promise of new bodies. Uh, When you're 30, you'll appreciate it more. I'm sure some of you veteran saints appreciate it even more than I do, but... The hope that's held out here is that one day the screw that's in my knee and the screw that's in my foot, one day the uh, walker that Kent uses, one day the wheelchair that Ellie uses, they'll be melted down into trophies or medallions or reminders, visible, tangible representations of God's ability to redeem and make things new. That day is coming. And what's crazy here in verse 23 is that it's saying that we get the first fruits of it now in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a down payment. He's the first installment. He's a pledge that guarantees the fullness of what's coming down the road. And here's the thing, though, about getting a taste, a little taste of something fuller to come. I mean, I think about my infant son right now. I give him his first bite of oatmeal. It doesn't calm him down from being hungry. It actually makes him more ravenous. He gets all fired up and now he wants to grab the whole bowl with two hands and dump it all in his mouth, right? And that's something like what 
God has given us in the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We've gotten a little bit of a taste. Those glorious moments we talked about earlier, he gives us that little taste, and it doesn't make us want less of God because now we're satisfied. It actually is meant to rev up our desire for God, to make us get even more ravenous and desirous for the day when we get to experience the fullness of what is to come, this glory that's coming. And the more we set our hope on that future redemption, the less we're going to set our hope on these lesser things that are sure to fail us. The more we set our hope on that glory that's coming, the clearer we can see it, the less we'll try to stake all of our hope on political victories fixing it, or education reform fixing it, or health care improvements fixing it. We'll realize that this situation we're in is not going to be truly made right until the day that Jesus returns to take us home and we experience redemption as we receive our new bodies. Let's make sure we've tracked throughout this whole passage before we conclude. We're going to go backwards just to make sure we followed the flow of it because I threw a lot at you. Verses 22 through 25 said we're groaning now with the groans of the maternity ward in the orphanage. That's because in verse 21, creation will share in our future glory. Even though, in verse 20, God subjected that same creation to futility. But it makes sense then that verse 19, creation is yearning for us to be seen in our future glory. And because of all of that, the thesis holds true that our suffering is worth it. Because of that future glory that's coming. Our big idea today, I, I, I leaned a lot on John Piper in this passage because he's written extensively on this passage. And... Uh, He said it this way, and I couldn't think of a better way to word the big idea than this. Don't throw away your hope in Christ when you suffer, because your suffering will lead to glory. Don't throw away your hope in Christ when you suffer, because your suffering will lead to glory. Can you see that glory this morning? That glory when the wolf will lie down with the lamb? That glory when hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and earthquakes will all cease. That glory when diabetes and arthritis will be no more. That glory when we receive our new bodies that are so glorious that we couldn't even bear to look at them right now. That glory when we get to walk with Jesus in intimacy so close that nothing could ever come between us. To the extent that you can see that glory now. To the extent that you're living in anticipation of it, day by day, you will have hope here on this earth in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the worst suffering. When difficult times come, if your eyes aren't fixed on a glorious picture of that hope ahead, you'll throw up the white flag pretty quickly. But if your eyes are set on the glory that's coming in the age to come, you'll be able to endure an incredible amount of suffering here on this earth. And some of you, my brothers and sisters, have. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's look ahead to that future glory so that we don't throw away our hope in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, We do yearn for that day. We long for it. We're so grateful for the tastes of it now. Just every so often, those tastes that you give us of something transcendent, something incredibly awesome, 
those tastes that make us want the rest of the bowl. And Lord, until that day, don't let any of our suffering sidetrack our faith. Help our suffering to drive us to you, to trust you even more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.